Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. We are live right now on Emerging Revolutionary War. Thank you, everybody, for coming and checking us out. Uh, I'm Mark Malloy, and I'm being joined tonight uh, with uh, by Gabe Neville, who uh, is the author of uh, the Eighth Virginia blog. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, definitely go check that blog out. A lot of good information about the Eighth Virginia Regiment. Uh, and also by Michael Cesare, uh, who's joining us from Williamsburg, Virginia, in his colonial tavern uh, that he's living there, where we should be having all of our uh, emerging Revolutionary War happy hours. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, tonight we're going to be, we have a, a great topic we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about uh, General Peter Muhlenberg, uh, and we'll also be talking about the 8th Virginia. Mike uh, just uh, published a book, just came out about a month ago, uh, about Peter Muhlenberg uh, and his life, which is one of the first biographies, I believe, on him in quite a long time. Uh, so it's <laughs> some nice praise on the back here as well. Uh, from That's right. Thank you for that, Mark. Um, but yeah, no, and, uh, and, you know, me and Mike go way back, uh, we were just talking before we got started that, uh, you know, one of my passions to get into Revolutionary War was through reenacting, and Mike's the uh, uh, captain of the 7th Virginia Regiment of the Continental Line, which uh, does awesome uh, job reenacting and doing living history all across the country. Uh, you should definitely check them out as well. And, uh, and yeah, no, I, I remember going and watching him reenacting and really wanted to be a part of it and joined up with a seventh. And, uh, you know, this year's the reenactments have been pretty limited because uh, of COVID, but hopefully get back out in the field sometimes. Mark, I was just bragging to my wife how uh, the seventh made you who you are. You know, you became a reenactor and now you're a park ranger. Yeah, I went to William and Mary, you probably would have gone there anyway, but went to William and Mary and, you know, have a passion for history. So we want to take some credit for that. Oh, yeah, we definitely get a lot of that credit. That's what... <laughs> but, anyway, uh, but yeah, no, so uh, we want to hear a little bit about, if you want to tell the viewers a little bit about the book, I guess we get, this is number, what number of book is this for you, Mike? Uh, this, this is my 16th, 16th book. Yeah, he's been writing for quite a long time. And honestly, you know, watching him, publish books while doing reenactments and things like that. Reading those books really also got me interested in wanting to write. Uh, and Mike was also gracious enough to write the uh, forward to my book, Victory or Death, about Trenton and Princeton, so. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're working on something new because you get bit by the bug, you just can't stop. What, are you working uh, on anything? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm actually working right now on one about uh, Charleston, South Carolina during the uh, Revolutionary War. Oh, we may have to talk then. <laughs> Well, the whole thing, the, the whole uh, eight years or so, or beyond that? Uh, just the, I mean, mostly the eight years, but focusing mainly on Sullivan's Island in 76 and then the siege in 1780. And it would, and similar to the other Emerging Revolutionary War series, it's focused a lot on places you can go visit. So it'll mm -hmm. 
at different locations in both those areas that you can actually see where some of the history took place. Uh, and, and obviously the 8th Virginia had, you know, was involved at Sullivan's Island. 76, all Virginians were uh, down there, unfortunately, in 1780 uh, as well, uh, mostly captured there. But anyway, so this is this is book number 16 for you. Uh, and uh, so what made you want to look into writing about uh, Peter Muhlenberg? Muhlenberg, the first, God, there are a couple of factors. And the first one that pops to mind is simply, um, I there were books on the other three Virginia Brigadier Generals from the 77, 78 time period. Um, my very, one of my first Rev War books I ever read was about George Whedon. Um, and uh, I forget the uh, Harry. Uh, oh, I forgot his name now. I'm embarrassing. Ward uh, wrote that, I believe, in uh, um, the late Harry Ward uh, wrote that, and and it was a fascinating account of Whedon. Then uh, I knew there was one on General Scott that that again he he wrote, and then I wrote one on William uh, Woodford who's not a popular character by any stretch to anyone except for me. And I liked him because he commanded um, the brigade that the 7th and the 11th Virginia was in. So I just, and he died, he died in the war. So I wanted to do a, a book on him. So once I had done mine on Woodford and the other two uh, were, were done, all of a sudden it's like, well, General Muhlenberg, he's the most uh, famous of them all. Anyway, what's out there on him? And I couldn't find much, you're absolutely right. Um, there was something in the 1950s or so that was written. And of course, the, the main source was one that was written 75 years um, after the revolution by his great nephew or something, um, which has a lot of good primary source information in it, but also a lot of legend and lore. So I started digging a little bit and I'm like, because this guy, the, the guy's name comes up. You mentioned the Virginia line got captured at Charleston, but he didn't go. He refused to go. <laughs> because he didn't want to serve under William Woodford. There was a big to-do about rank. So he's in Virginia left to pick up the pieces. He's pretty much the only one. I mean, George Whedon had stayed, had resigned in protest, but Muhlenberg had stuck through it. So when I started digging about Muhlenberg, I, was, I, I started finding some great stuff. Um, for instance, what jumps out at me is he is, he could be anybody. He, he could be anybody. I mean, the guy was, uh, first generation American, you know, German born in Pennsylvania. Um, at, uh, when he, as in his adolescent years, his father, who is a, a very important Lutheran minister, moves the family to uh, Philadelphia and his son starts getting in trouble hanging out. I, I wrote it down. Uh, I wanted to use the quote. It was, it was quite funny. But he's hanging out with kind of the wrong sort of people, right? He just couldn't get in trouble hanging out, hanging around the city teenagers that are idle. Um, so he said he decides to send his of course i can't find the quote he decides to send his um his son peter and his two other sons over to germany now peter gets apprenticed for six years as a grocer and at first he thinks this is going to be good he's just going to be a grocer think about that for a second you know he's he's uh what 16 17 years old and he writes later on uh, that he learned in four weeks everything he needed to know about that trade and wasn't interested in it, but he was signed up for six years. And so needless to say, after a couple of years of being somewhat exploited, he starts to get antsy and he wants out. And, they, and his father finds out about it and you have to negotiate because the person that is training him has also essentially signed a contract to do so. So they have to renegotiate and his father agrees to pay some money to shorten the, the duration of the basically the indenture. And then Muhlenberg jumps ship, literally jumps ship. He gets an opportunity to join the 60th American Royal, the Royal American Regiment, which is recruiting in Germany. It's basically a German regiment working for the British being garrisoned in America. So he's gonna use that as a reason to go home. And he, and he giants, joins up. Now, this isn't the important part because that's the extent of his military experience right there, being essentially the regimental secretary <laughs> for the trip across the ocean. That's it. In 1766, I think it is. He's 20 years old now. So he gets home. His father's furious at him, um, but still pays off his debts, and he's, he's discharged from the regiment. 
And um, now he, he's kind of adrift and he ends up following dad's footsteps. Remember, he's the oldest son. So he ends up um, preaching himself and he's good at it. He's really good at it. And before you know it, um, he, get, he captures the attention of um, a um, gentleman out of um, uh, Colonel Wood out of uh, Frederick County, who's looking for a bilingual, basically a bilingual minister, someone who can speak German and, and English for uh, Beckford Parish, which is in what is now Shenandoah County, but back then it was uh, Dunmore County. And uh, the catch was that Muhlenberg had to be ordained in the Anglican Church because it was the established church in Virginia. So he agrees, he goes over, checks it out, likes what he sees, goes uh, across to England, gets ordained in England, comes back to uh, now Virginia with his wife, he's, he's newly married, and um, kind of takes over the church. That's 1772. Within a couple of years, he is essentially chairing the committee meetings in that, in that county, in Dunmore County. That's how prominent he is. And, and, and then uh, by 1776, he's attending the 4th Virginia Convention, and he's chosen to command the 8th Virginia. Now, the guy's 29 years old, has almost no military experience to speak of, but there must have been something about his character. And now I'm going to let, I've been rambling on, this is where Gabe comes in, because he's the expert on the 8th Virginia, but I just find, you know, so far the story's already got me, and, and that's just the beginning before the military stuff, which is always the cool stuff. Mark, Mark, you want me to just pick up from there? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so so Peter's, uh, you know, he's he's the director of Beckford Parish. Uh, some people say that he's got a dual ordination, that he's a Lutheran and an Anglican preacher. He's not. Uh, there's no evidence he was ever ordained in the Lutheran church. So he, he's an Anglican. And theologically, there's not a whole lot of difference. And as I like to say, the king himself was German, right? So there wasn't that much controversy associated with this switching from one to the other. But uh, as Mike said, so he, he ends up uh, chairing the county committee, or as we usually call them now, the Committee of Safety. Uh, he actually wrote the uh, Dunmore Resolves, um, uh, responding to the Boston uh, boycott movement. Uh, it was, uh, it closely mirrored the uh, um, Frederick County Resolves, which were written by Charles Minthruston, who was another fighting pastor from uh, Woods, uh, Winchester, just to the north. Um, and then, uh, you know, he comes back uh, from the Virginia Convention uh, with a, a commission or, or a, a, an announced commission, um, and his job is to put together a whole new regiment. So just, just a minute about, about the regiment. So if you, if you read the popular narrative about uh, Muhlenberg's farewell sermon and how the 8th Virginia Regiment was recruited. Uh, there's a picture of this behind Mark, by the way, a very ahistorical picture there. He was probably <laughs> wearing a hunting shirt, by the way. Um, I was good. So, <laughs> I thought the same um, thing when I saw it. So, so the story goes uh, that, you know, he comes back and he's, he's a colonel and he, he gives just a barn burning sermon uh, uh, from Ecclesiastes, which it ends with, you know, there, there's a, a time for peace and a time for war, and boys, it's time for war, let's go fight, and he takes off his black cloak, and underneath there's a, a, a colonel's uniform, and all the men shout, and suddenly he's got 680 guys enlisted, right? Well, that's not how it happened. Exactly. Um, exactly. He probably gave the sermon, and, and Mike, by the way, I, I got to give you kudos, you were the first person in history Ooh. to write sort of a historical, careful, uh, almost certainly accurate depiction of how the sermon actually went. Thank uh, you. And you, you read the source materials carefully um, and, and you, you produced actual history as opposed to a, uh, um, well, whatever else we've had in the past. Um, so the, the way, it, the, the, way the, the regiment was actually recruited is uh, at the beginning of the war in Virginia, uh, counties were given assignments for recruiting. Uh, every county in Virginia had to recruit either one or two companies, and they weren't even assigned to regiments yet. They just had to, they just had to recruit one or two companies, depending on their population. Um, the 8th Virginia uh, had 10 companies uh, raised in eight different counties. Uh, Dunmore County raised two of them. Um, the the uh, Virginia Convention had this interesting notion that um, maybe they could form a German regiment 
because on, on the far side of the Blue Ridge, there were a lot of Germans who had come there from Pennsylvania. Uh, almost none of them came overland from Tidewater, Virginia. Almost all of them came from Pennsylvania. Um, and so they, they weren't really culturally Virginian. You know, their religion was different, their ethnicity was different. A lot of them didn't even speak English. But uh, you know, the, the Virginia Convention wanted them to fight. They were, they were, you know, they were good marksmen and they were they were, you know, able-bodied. And if they could if they could get them uh, literally enlisted into the effort, it would be a good thing. So they had this notion of forming a German regiment. Um, uh, so uh, the committee of the, the uh, Commonwealth Committee of Safety, the Virginia Committee of Safety, um, uh, assigned these uh, ten companies from eight different uh, counties to the eighth. Now they came from a very broad swath of the Virginia frontier, uh, stretching all the way from Fort Pitt or Pittsburgh, yeah. which at the time was considered to be part of Virginia, uh, at least by Virginians all the way down to essentially not quite the Cumberland Gap, more like the Holston River settlements, uh, the New River settlements. So this actually goes a little bit into North Carolina. P people didn't quite know where the line was. So that's, that's several hundred miles. There is no way that Peter Muhlenberg personally recruited all of these people through one sermon, right? <laughs> Um, Within a week of him uh, being, or two weeks of him being right. appointed. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, and, and the rendezvous, more to, more to the point, was in Suffolk, Virginia. So it wasn't, it wasn't until the following spring in Suffolk that a lot of these people even met each other. Um, so, but Dunmore County was sort of the heart and soul of, of it, right? You know, Peter Muhlenberg was from there. Uh, the Lieutenant Colonel, Abraham Bowman, uh, who was even younger. I think he was 28 years old. Um, uh, he was from Dunmore County. Uh, the major was Peter Helfenstein, who was from Winchester. All three of them are German. So all of the field officers were German. Uh, I have a theory that I have yet to be able to prove that the convention didn't really care if the regiment was all German. They just wanted Germans in charge mm. because the other people in the regiment were Irish. No right. offense, Mark. No offense, Mark. Um, they, you know, they, these were what we would call today uh, Scotch-Irish, right? So they were Presbyterians. Uh, Presbyterianism was synonymous with sort of uh, nonconformism and rebelliousness uh, at the time. Um, and uh, I think the Virginia Convention just really, really wanted the Germans in charge if there was going to be a frontier regiment. Um, so I, so uh, it, but even Dunmore County had two companies, one led by Jonathan Clark, who was George Rogers Clark's brother, William Clark from the Lewis and Clark expedition, their older brother. Uh, he led the, the German company from Dunmore County. Richard Campbell, uh, about whom Mike has written another book, uh, he led the, the so-called English company from Dunmore County. So even in Dunmore County, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't just Germans. So at any rate, so they, they finally uh, rendezvoused in, in Suffolk in the spring. Uh, their first job was capturing, capturing slaves who were trying to escape to Lord uh, Dunmore's floating city of uh, Tory refugees. Uh, when Charles Lee showed up in town, uh, he insisted that they relocate Tories from the uh, seaboard to get them away yeah. from a position where they could help uh, Dunmore. So they were given that very unpleasant job. Forced evacuation, uh, right. Yeah, and, th and then uh, word showed up that, uh, a word came that uh, the British were headed south uh, towards Cape Fear. Uh, turned out they were headed to Charleston. And uh, Charles Lee, uh, who was the, I think by then the second ranking general in the entire Continental Army after Washington, uh, he looked around and said, okay, we're gonna have to head south. Um, who am I taking with me? And he finds that the 8th Virginia is the best equipped uh, most complete regiment in the Virginia line and says, okay, you guys are coming with me. Uh, and they headed south. Um, I might uh, hand off to, I don't know, Mark, you, you used to be a park ranger down there and you're writing a book about Sullivan's Island. Why don't you tell us what happens next? <laughs> I mean, I always thought it was amazing because, uh, yeah, uh, you know, growing up in Virginia and, yeah, having been out to, to Woodstock, uh, you know, and hearing the story, you go there today at Woodstock, and they have uh, two statues to yeah. there, uh, and uh, describe his uh, his famous uh, taking off the the cloak, which I actually uh, was able to reenact uh, for the town uh, on a couple occasions, uh, perpetuating the myth. So, uh, well, but but no, we want, we want to make sure though. Um, 
there's a lot of it that's absolutely true, I think. I think, I mean, there's no doubt that, that he, he gave a sermon that inspired people. The details are where I think they, they fudge. For instance, the artist in the background behind you painted a Continental officer, right? But he didn't realize that in 1776, the Continental, uh, the uniform of Virginia's officers, I mean, you see it in the orderly books, is a hunting shirt with a sash. And, and they weren't Continentals yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they don't, exactly. They don't become yeah. Continentals for a while, a while longer. And the other thing, um, as Gabe um, rightly pointed out, was it's the timing. The timing just does not make sense. It, it assumes that he went out and recruited everybody. And that wasn't even his responsibility. That was the responsibility. They actually, um, you see it in Hennings, uh, Hennings uh, statutes. Um, you, if you are a captain, if you've been chosen by your county to be a captain, then you have to recruit a certain quota of men. And then the lieutenant has to do the same thing and the ensign has to do the same thing. Those are the guys that went out there and signed everybody up. So I've always, and, and, and when you dig deep and you find out well, where was the source of this, where did this story come from? And it looks like it really got, it, it, got, it, got, it took traction from his nephew, his great nephew who wrote the biography of him. But you find other accounts. The one I, I kind of relied on, I was, I was warned by others lately, you know, don't put too much credence um, in, um, who is it? Uh, Thatcher. Thatcher, I want to say Thayer for some reason. And, um, but he, runs, he, he, he describes this detail where he's at a, essentially a, an officer's gathering and then he tells the story about um, how he um, very, it's very non, I mean, not very well detailed, but he, he tells the story about Muhlenberg being a minister who gave a sermon and then marched. And then he, he says it, and then he led 300 men, you know, east or something like that. So I'm convinced it was basically a farewell sermon in March. And then he marched with, the, with some of the companies that formed there. But I agree with Gabe too that some of them are. I'm not going to go all the way up to Woodstock if I'm down in Wattawa County. I'm my my muster point is Suffolk. I'm going that way. I'm not going to you know double my distance. So that's that's my theory. Um, and I completely and I agree with that. Mike. What's that? I completely agree with that. Uh, okay. And I, I think that you know 300 is actually a plausible number. Mm -hmm. If you add it up a certain way, right? So each each company had sixty eight enlisted guys exactly. plus, plus company officers, yep. and you know Dunmore by itself had two companies, right? And you right. can see that Hampshire County, just to the west, what's now West Virginia, they might have you know hooked up with them there, right? Yeah, so what's that add up to? And then you know they uh, you know Frederick County might have joined them, yeah, right? Even Culpeper might have, right? Right. So you know, it's 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 entirely plausible that there were about 300 guys there for that event that day. Right. And and I I also think that um, that that Henry A. Muhlenberg account, if you read it just like really carefully, I mean he's clearly proud of his great uncle, right? Of course. And, and he and he wants this to be a big deal, and he's definitely passing on some sort of family lore. But if you read it really carefully. Uh, I think it's a little bit more factual in some ways than it appears. Okay. Because like it lends itself to being romantic. But if you, if you read, for instance, the notion that he had on his cloak, like his pastor's cloak or whatever you call it, and then at the end of the sermon, he took it off and his uniform was there. Well, I think that's probably true. Yeah. But I don't think he was hiding his uniform. I mean, as you and I agree, everybody knows he's the colonel already. I yeah. think he was wearing the cloak as a matter of propriety. He's in the pulpit. Right. right? Given his last I, so and and his great great nephew, he doesn't say one way or the other. He just says he took off the cloak. Right. So I, I don't think it was this big dramatic surprise when he took the cloak off. I think he just had the cloak on because he was preaching. Right. Yep. So you know, I, I think if you read that account carefully. Now there's another account, uh, and th this is the Thomas Buchanan Reed version, which is uh really doesn't pretend to be historical, but it's the one that captured everybody's imagination, right? So in the, in like the 1850s, I think, this is the guy who wrote Sheridan's Ride, right? Um, you know, this, these epic poems about American history. Another oh, one was called The Wagoner of the Alleghenies, right? And this is a, a Revolutionary War epic poem that is, as we would describe it today, based on actual events, right? So he, he places this story actually in the Schuylkill River in Pennsylvania. But it is very closely based on Henry Muhlenberg's account of his great uncle, 
right? right. And uh, he had professional actors that would travel from town to town and read this poem out loud, right? So this was this was like a, a you know, as in the 1850s, it it told, you know, it, it was the narrative of the Revolutionary War, just as like you know maybe Turn was three years ago, right? I mean, it, it was where everybody kind of learned about the revolution. About as accurate too. Yeah, about as accurate, exactly right. Um, and it, it became so entrenched in American culture that McGuffey's readers, where you know every kid learned how to read, yeah. the, the account of the Muhlenberg sermon, not mentioning him by name, but the pastor who became the colonel and you know gave the dramatic yeah, the fighting, the fighting Ecclesiastes part. and the whole story's in there, right in McGuffey's readers. So every American kid for decades read the story. Sure. It, it's, sure. it's no wonder that this you know, slightly inaccurate version is so entrenched in people's minds. And we, and we see a version of it in the movie The Patriot in 2000 yeah. when, uh, when the minister comes and takes care of his flock by yeah. off the wolves. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Exactly right. Yeah, I wonder if it's uh, partly, yeah, to this kind of uh, belief to show God is on our side type thing. So yeah. the, right, the righteous cause. Really, sure. thing is uh, just, I mean, during this time period, how religious people were uh what, what played a much more important role in their lives uh it played you know something like that would be symbolically just having a uh you know a minister going off to fight i think uh meant a lot to people too i'm still more fascinated with his age though i just think i mean i know 29 year olds and i just don't see many of them unless they're like been trained through the army you know to just take them off the street and say you're in charge of 700 men go fight. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> my kids are almost that age. No. <laughs> and, uh, well, and what I was saying before, you know, you know, having grown up in this area, seeing Woodstock, and the geography of all this is just fascinating to me, too, as Gabe was mentioning. People coming from Pittsburgh, marching, you know, by foot over to, uh, you know, Suffolk, Virginia, and then down to South Carolina. All these guys going down to South Carolina is... Uh, <sighs> Just, uh, you know, having, yeah, go walking around in the, sh in the, in the shoes they would have been wearing, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine. They didn't want to go either. There's that great quote where, from Lee, that letter, the excerpt from General Lee, complaining about these good-for-nothing Virginians. Mm -hmm. uh, but then he later on, after the battle, he, he kind of give, pays him a compliment, which I've never quite understood. Because uh, from what I saw, I don't think they played a big role. They were ready to play a big role. Yeah, but most of the fighting was the fort, at, um, you know, and then the, um, the the infantry that were in position to defend, but they didn't really even have. Well, to do let that. me say something about about that, Mike. If you read the pension applications for these guys, um, so you know the story of Sullivan's Island is all about Fort Moultrie. Sure. Or on that day, it was called Fort Sullivan. If if, if Mark doesn't correct me, um, that's where all the action was, right? That's where the British ships were pounding their cannons. Yeah. But the British had, uh, I'm trying, I'm forgetting the numbers. I think they had 3,000 infantry up on what was called Long Island now. Right, and right. Now it's Isle of Palms, and they were going to cross the Breach Inlet right. and attack. Uh, J uh, James Thompson, I think, was the South Carolina, um, uh, what was he? I think he was state troops. And not, I don't think he was militia or continental. I think they were like state troops. South Carolina. North End. Um, they fought off the, the, amphibious assault that was coming from, from uh, Long Island. But there are several 8th Virginia um, uh, veterans who in their applications claim to have been there for this. And, and I, I, I got them kind of earmarked and I need to kind of compile them and reconcile them and see how it all works. But it appears to me that about 100 men or about three companies, um, which would add up to different numbers, um, uh, volunteered or were detached under major helfenstein to go go assess that would make more sense because i mean i couldn't understand why lee would give pam such a good compliment i mean he really yeah. did and i yeah. knew that it sounded like they were on the mainland ready to cross but yeah. it wasn't clear to me that they that any of them got across but also again all my the years of doing this you start to realize that you might start out with 600 700 men in virginia by the time they got North Carol, I mean South Carolina and Charleston after you know in June, yeah, they probably were down to a hundred. You mentioned a hundred effectives. And by September, October, after they got bit by mosquitoes, they were down even further. Yeah, I think down to Georgia. 
about how Lido, uh, uh, yeah, killed off so many of those guys. More of them died from that than than really. Yeah, yeah the major ended up getting sick and dying, coming home and dying. Yeah, yeah when, when they so when they left uh, Charleston uh, after the battle on on August fifth, and they had to leave one hundred and forty seven men behind because they were too sick to travel. And then when they got to uh, Sunbury, Georgia, uh, and, and we should say that they. Lee wanted to take them all the way to St. Augustine, Florida, which was a Tory haven. They were going to attack St. Augustine. They never made it. When, when they got to Sunbury, um, uh, Willie Moultrie was with them. So there, there were South Carolina troops, North Carolina troops with them. He said that of, of, you know, amongst all of these guys, about 15 men a day were dying from malaria. Wow. So if, if you look at the, at the muster rolls uh, for the 8th, You'll see that entire companies were wiped out. If 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 you if you were from, uh, if you grew up along the you know in the Carolinas uh, or along the seaboard, you might have a bit of a, a resistance to malaria. But if you're from Hampshire County, West Virginia, or Berkeley County, or you know the Seminole Valley, you have no resistance. Right. So the companies from Pittsburgh. Um, well, one company from Pittsburgh, because one didn't make it. Um, the uh, company from Berkeley County, William Dark's company. Uh, the company from Fincastle County, which is now basically uh, Kentucky. Uh, they were just wiped out. I mean, like a handful of guys survived. Uh, it, it was very deadly. Yeah. Yeah, and so when he gets back, uh, um, he gets back, Newmer gets back to Virginia, to Woodstock, I think, around... December, uh, mid-December, late December, and he writes that his unit is shattered, is shattered, and the rest of them come back in January, and I mean, at that point, it's starting not to be his problem anymore because he's about to be promote, promoted to Brigadier General, but you're absolutely right, that 8th Virginia, which, by the way, he writes, now I, I'm assuming it, this was the way it was when they went down there, but he also, he, he writes a letter saying, um, he, he'd like to see his uh, the 8th Virginia armed with muskets because right now they all had rifles. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, did my antenna go up when I read that because I'd always heard about you know um, the 11th Virginia, which by the way, I don't believe was all rifles. I think they were mostly rifles. 8th Virginia apparently was all rifles simply because of where they came from again, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Got one letter that said that. And there's evidence that that continued. Um, uh, William Dark, who was a, a captain uh, from Berkeley County, who uh, uh, after Peter Helfenstein died or resigned because he was dying, uh, should have become the, the major. Uh, your guy, uh, Richard Campbell, got the promotion instead, although that yeah. was two years later. He knew the right person. He knew General Lee. You know, they were, <laughs> well, I, I think Dark was sick and left behind in Charleston. I think probably. That, that makes sense. Yeah. But um, uh, when that fight is happening over the promotion controversy, they're, they're back up in the Philadelphia campaign. And right. Dark gets detached uh, in New Jersey in the spring before the Battle of Short Hills, uh, evidently to lead riflemen alongside Daniel Morgan. Oh, and okay. okay. Is, is how I was leaving the state. It's, it's Dark and, and Daniel Morgan doing yeah. it. Yeah. Right? I think they've all got, I think they have rifles. And then uh, when Maxwell's light infantry is formed, right, uh, as, as a light infantry force, mm -hmm. um, at that, by that time in the war, light infantry usually, I think, means muskets as opposed to like Morgan's rifles. Right. Uh, but I think Dark's guys probably still had, early in the war, it clearly meant, at least in Virginia, it meant rifles. Absolutely. It says again in Hennings, it says right there, uh, we will raise three companies uh, per regiment of riflemen to serve as light infantry. Yeah, no, that's exactly. But but Darkie, I think, is leading riflemen detached from the eighth. You know, well into seventeen seventy seven. Did any of um was Dark? I should know this. Uh, did any of the eighth Virginia serve in Morgan's Rifle Corps and make it to yeah. Saratoga? Yeah, not, not many. But uh, so uh, James Knox, Knox. Who was the captain from uh, Fincastle County. Yes. Uh, now, like all of Southwest Virginia into Kentucky. Absolutely. Uh, I know that name. He was a pre-war long hunter, like Daniel Boone, right? Yep. And he, he formed a company um, 
uh, in one of the original companies, they were almost all wiped out by malaria. Um, but when they got back to New Jersey, he and his, I think the lieutenant and the ensign, one of the lieutenants, I think one of his other lieutenants was gone. They all got detached to Morgan's Rifles. Okay, I was always, I was always <laughs> unclear. I never was able to find, you know, firm evidence that they went per company because the orders say select the men based on their ability, and it seems it sounds like it's an individual selection. So I think that's right, and and they were all detached, like Morgan's yeah. Rifles. All of those guys were officially still members of their home regiments, just just detached temporarily with Morgan. Yeah. So you'll never find a muster roll of of Morgan's Rifles, as I understand it. Oh, no, 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 that's not true. I've got them. I'm in my rifleman book. I, uh, the National Park had assembled one. Um, it's in the back there, and that's where the. Um, I didn't see that. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I, you know, I just have the transcription, so I don't know the, the original source, I think, was just copied. It's up in Saratoga. Um, Eric Schnitzer would be the man that would be able to help you out there in Saratoga. All right. Well, not to belabor this with our viewers, but I'm going to email you about that. Okay. I'm, I'm to see that. <laughs> what, how, how many eighth Virginia guys are still, I, I mean, are around by, you know, after all these guys are dying down in South Carolina and Georgia and, you know, are there, are there hundreds of them still, or, I mean, are, do they have to replenish uh, throughout? And at some point they end up redesignating a, a lot of these units. Um, yeah. Later. That's not until after Monmouth. Yeah. Okay. 78. Yeah. So, so when they get back, uh, you know, in the spring of 77, Muhlenberg gets promoted to general, Abraham Bowman becomes the colonel, uh, and they, they go to New Jersey to rendezvous with the main army. Uh, uh, Richard Campbell, who was the major, but shouldn't have been, uh, he gets sent back to the Shenandoah Valley to recruit because they're, they're severely depleted. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, J uh, What's it? Hey, Robert Higgins uh, is a new captain appointed by Washington to form a, an entirely new company because one of the companies was gone for reasons I won't get into. And he he spent months trying to recruit a new company. And after several months, he'd only recruited 20 guys. Yeah, yeah, that was getting hard in 77. And Morgan then they, had this. And they, and they joined the army right before Germantown and they all got captured. <laughs> Daniel Morgan had the exact same problem coming back as a hero from, from Quebec. You know, yeah. he gets captured in 75, held prisoner all that time, comes back to Virginia in the fall of 76, winter of 76, and is trying to recruit. And he's like, it's, he's finding out it's the, the enthusiasm has gone by, by 77. Yeah. So it's, it's much harder to, to fill those, uh, those positions up. Yeah. And it never got, I don't think it ever got easy after that. I mean, your, your piece on the, the 18 months men from last year, whatever that was, I mean, that's case in point. I mean, they basically just had to draft people after a while. Yeah, yeah. So. So, uh, so Muhlenberg gets promoted to general and then, and then how does that go for him? <laughs> well, I mean, he serves, I mean, he's at, he's, uh, he's put in General Green's division. Um, Make sure I got this right. Green and Wheaton, yeah. I mean, uh, Muhlenberg and Wheaton are, and Green. So he's gonna he's gonna be at the Battle of Brandywine. He's gonna be at the Battle of Germantown. He's gonna be at Valley Forge. The pro uh, the thing that really jumps out um, though is the rank controversy. Uh, what happened is um, when Virginia started naming new uh, brigadiers, you remember it was George Washington goes off. He's the commander in chief. The first brigadier general I think was uh, Andrew Lewis. I think yeah. And then Hugh Mercer gets named. Yeah. And then Hugh Mercer gets named, and Mercer's the commander of the Third Virginia. And then Adam Stevens gets named. Well, the problem is there's a guy named William Woodford, who'd already been a hero at, at Great Bridge, and he was getting passed over. He fell. It was mostly because of French and Indian War experience, but still, Woodford was was mad about that. He thought, you know. He recognized that Mercer was essentially a more experienced general. So that one wasn't the one that pushed him over the edge. But when Adam Stevens got promoted ahead of him, he lost it and he resigned. And there's a great letter where Washington says, don't do it, don't do it, you're gonna regret it. And sure enough, because then Congress names four more brigadier generals and Woodford is the fourth one they named. It, it's Muhlenberg, Whedon, well, it's Muhlenberg, Whedon, and then um, 
Well, Scott is the he he's added a little bit later. <laughs> Muhlenberg, we we and then Woodford. So Woodford now has blown it. He should have been the next one in line, but now he's behind. So he kind of whines about it, and his allies. He's got a good friend, Edmund Pendleton, and they kind of do this little campaign to reorder it. And eventually they do. The Congress eventually reshuffles. So Muhlenberg goes from number of the of the current brigadiers in '77. Muhlenberg goes from number one. I think. I think he slides down to number two. Um, I don't know, because then there's Scott gets bumped up. But all this, all this nagging and whining, and Whedon ends up resigning. And um, you know, Scott becomes kind of a non-factor because then he gets shipped down to uh, he never comes back to, to the army after he goes to Virginia in 79. And then he gets captured at Charlestown. And then so, so does Woodford too. But there's just a lot of tension over rank in 78, 79. And then it all gets settled by by Charleston and Navy. <laughs> and so, and yeah, so they the most of Virginia line is going to go down to uh, Charlestown, but uh, but yeah. Muhlenberg doesn't go. Nope, Muhlenberg refuses to go. In fact, he I kind of respect him for this because he writes, you know, a couple of times to Washington that honor is requiring him to resign, but. I understand that you're also in dire straits for officers, so I'll, I'll pick a better time. So he never pulls the trigger. He never actually quits the way Whedon quits, he walks away, which was a mm, not a cool thing. So um, Muhlenberg sticks, sticks in there. And at the end, um, when the whole Virginia line's ordered down, Muhlenberg's kind of like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I am not going south under that man, you know? And so they come up with this arrangement. Where, well, why don't you just hang out in Virginia and help recruit and send more, more troops down? And it worked itself out because then the Virginia line shows up, what, you know, you know the story, Mark, shows up in April and is captured in May with yeah. everybody else. Right in there. Yeah, again, marching overland in the, uh, down to South Carolina. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And at least a little bit cooler, a little bit cooler, but then there's winter conditions. So a lot of times they didn't have tents. Yeah. And who and wants to the anyway. campaign? I think that uh, uh, Muhlenberg and George Washington are the only Virginia generals left in the field. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got some guys like Daniel Morgan, who is, is you know, he, he's suffering from sciatica and raging hemorrhoids, so he can't fight, right? Oh, um, you had to mention the hemorrhoids. <laughs> oh, no. I always avoid that. That's just one of those things you do. I don't want to have to explain that one. It's true. It's true. You're right. Yeah. But uh, and and then the fate of those guys who do surrender at Charleston is pretty awful because a lot of them, uh, you know, get thrown on prison ships out in Charleston yeah. Harbor. And uh, yeah, my man Woodford ends up getting sick and die and dies. Yeah, and they end up trying to send him. They they won't let him go home. They won't parole him. He needs to be paroled. Get out of there. Um, but they send him north to New York too late, and he apparently he's buried in um, Trinity Church, I think, right out right in the shadow of the World Trade Center. You know, yep. Freedom Tower, I think that was it. Yep. That's where, yeah, Alexander Hamilton's buried there, too. So. Yeah. But they, uh, but, but yeah, so a lot of these guys, and then the whole time the British are giving, you know, all these private soldiers the, the opportunity to take the King's shilling to, you know, it's amazing wow. that those who decided not to take that uh, and rather stuck it out in the prison ships, which, you know, was probably fate worse than death and death for many of them. But uh, but so so Muhlenberg avoids that Travis Travis travesty and uh, is is then involved in the campaign there in Virginia. Uh, yes, yes, he has almost like a second chapter or another chapter all to himself, and that's uh, you know he's here. Uh, they try to sort out. They don't have much to work with of the Virginia line. There are some remnants of it. Of course, a lot of them get wiped out at the Waxhaws. Uh, so they try to pick up the pieces, and in in the summer of of eighty. The Virginia Assembly comes up with a 18-month essential service a plan. Um, they try to raise 3,000 men to meet their continental quota, which is way. I think the quota was 5,000. But in any case, they're trying to and they're meeting. Uh, they're trying to assemble them at Ch um, Chesterfield Courthouse and all. And Muhlenberg's kind of dealing with that and traveling around the state uh, at different places, um, trying to recruit and. Um, it gets uh, essentially, you know, you've got that little uh, the diversionary raid there. It doesn't go very well. It was the Leslie raid uh, in 80, in the fall of 80, that kind of alarms the state. 
But the real big thing is Arnold. When, when you know, starting in January all the way to Yorktown, there's a lot that happens in Virginia, and Muhlenberg is involved with the, with almost all of it. I mean, he he actually gets to go home um, in in late December to go home to Woodstock and see his family, which he has not seen his family that often, you know, very much compared to a lot of other officers who could take furloughs all the time. And then all of a sudden. Um, literally gets there and two days later, uh, an urgent dispatch shows up saying, I need you back from Steuben. Steuben's now the overall commander here in Virginia. I need you back, you know, uh, force of uh, British forces set up at James. So he turns around and starts making his way and he ends up at Cabin Point. Now there's not, he's a continental officer. This is something that a lot of people have always misunderstood. They thought he did like what Whedon did and left, but he hasn't left. He's a continental officer, but um, the, most of the continental soldiers that are in Virginia in the hundreds, there aren't that many, are either being shipped down or sent down when they're ready to reinforce Nathaniel Green. And then the remnants who are not ready are being held in the cabins there at Chesterfield Courthouse. So he doesn't have a lot of continentals to work with, so he commands militia. And so when Arnold does his raid up the river and you know burns part of Richmond down and goes back down and ends up in Portsmouth, then um, Muhlenberg is essentially the man on the spot. He's not the overall commander, he's second in command, but he's, he's kind of in charge of everybody south of the James, all the American forces south of the James. So he ends up spending a lot of time in the Suffolk area. And we, a bunch of us in the seventh did a lot of um, kind of touring of that area. Cause we'd look at the maps and we'd like, I don't understand. Why didn't he just go from, I mean, from Portsmouth to Suffolk is like 25 miles, but we forget that we build bridges and we drain swamps. And so we build straight roads and they didn't, they got to go around the, these, some of these things. And so it starts to make much more sense. So he's there all spring, all winter into the spring. And then, you know, you know the rest of the story. Then, and then uh, reinforcements of the British show up. Um, Lafayette actually was hoping he was going to be able to bag Cornwallis, uh, I mean, not Cornwallis, La, um, Arnold in Portsmouth. Um, but um, um, British Navy shows up and protects them and then reinforcements. So they sail up the river again in April and there's a battle at Petersburg. Now Petersburg is an amazing story in the sense that it's essentially a David versus Goliath. And Muhlenberg, I think, is the man who um, is on the field, you know, commanding. We didn't win the battle, but we definitely didn't turn and run. It's 2,500 versus 1,000, 2,500 Brits versus a thousand militia. Now, I think some of those troops are pretty pretty well experienced troops though. I mean, they have a lot of experience and there's there's more to, to the story out there down the road to dig into. Um, but after Petersburg, then um, I think Lafayette comes and takes over, you know, with his reinforcements, the light infantry. And Muhlenberg ends up, um, and it gets complicated when Anthony Wayne shows up too with the Pennsylvanians, there's, you know, a lot of switching of responsibilities between these generals now. And Muhlenberg ends up being essentially in command of light infantry, continental light infantry, the, the light infantry that Lafayette actually brought down. Okay, so he doesn't really participate in battles of Spencer's Ordinary or Green Spring. That's all the, the Pennsylvanians had been detached. So Muhlenberg's back with Lafayette with the main force. Um, and then of course, you know, we kind of work our way to, uh, to Yorktown and, and Muhlenberg's in command of the light infantry even at Yorktown. I mean, those were his troops, technically speaking, that stormed the redoubts, nine and, uh, uh, I guess it would have been nine, no, 10, the American troops that, you know, Alexander Hamilton gets all the credit for, and rightly so. I mean, he did lead the charge, but it was Muhlenberg's, uh, he was the commander of the light infantry. All right, I've rattled on and on, but you get the point. Let me say something about Yorktown. So. Um... Uh, Henry A. Muhlenberg, who, you know, the, the great nephew who wrote the first biography, he actually makes a big issue of this at Yorktown, right? Yeah. At, near the end of his book. So, and, and I thought about this, and I think, you know, so it, uh, Hamilton gets credit for having led the troops that stormed the readout, right? And he, and Henry A. Muhlenberg claims that uh, Hamilton's friends had essentially stolen credit for this from Muhlenberg, who, who he says actually led. Well, the word lead has two meanings, right? Right, and right. Hamilton went first, like yeah. he led as in he went in front, but lead also means to be in charge, right? And, and Muhlenberg was in charge. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so both are sort of true. And then, and then uh, the, the, the great nephew, the biographer, also says that because Hamilton d died, nobody wanted to sort of take credit away from it, right? So, so the myth was perpetuated. So, so this is an well, interesting point. This well, I, I, I was surprised at that too. And I read it as Muhlenberg was essentially in the main body that followed the shock troops. Yes. So, so he was right there. He was, he was wounded. He was wounded. Yeah, so too, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hamilton wrote the report because Muhlenberg was wounded. And so, you know, Washington gets the news from Hamilton. So he gets the credit. Yeah, because Muhlenberg's also not feeling, he, he ends up getting sick around the same time period too. So, well, he had malaria. He, yeah. he died from the you know, symptoms of malaria years later. So he, he was probably having a relapse of malaria. Right, because he ends up right after Yorktown. I mean, it was even questionable to me whether he was there for the surrender. It was unclear if he actually was there for the ceremony, but I know he goes to Woodstock, I mean, immediately after it's all wrapped up. Yeah. Well, he's in the painting anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Muhlenberg's post-war career is also interesting, at least politically speaking, because he, after the war, he's a big anti-federalist, uh, um, which is interesting because it seems like a lot of the, the men who fought uh, tended to side with the federalist uh, camp uh, with Washington. Um, so I think that, I thought that was kind of interesting uh, from his post-war years. Yeah, that, that's actually really interesting. So he's in the very, he's in the first Congress, right? So after the Constitution is ratified, uh, he is elected to the House of Representatives in the first Congress, as is his brother. His brother was the first Speaker of the House, right? right and, his brother, right. and his brother was a Federalist, hmm. right? And Peter's an anti-Federalist. Um, but and they, you know, they both voted on the Bill of Rights, right? They both voted to create the U.S. patent system. I mean, all of these amazing things that happened in the first Congress, he's there for. Right? Hmm. And I, I don't I actually don't remember what the compromise was, but there was some major controversy that his brother Frederick, the speaker, sort of flipped his vote on, uh, sort of for the sake of national unity. I, I don't remember what the issue was, but. Um, uh, there, there was definitely some some very dramatic politics going on uh, at that time and between the two of them. Now, and, oh, oh I was just going to ask. You know, he went to con he, he was representing Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yeah. After the war, once it's all done, he stays to the end. He ends up being a major general. They uh, they essentially promoted. Uh, they gave everybody a, one more rank above where they were at the end of the war. So he was a brigadier general. Uh, they made him major general when he retired or when he, you know, when it was all done. Uh, but he writes that he just couldn't, he couldn't return after, all, what, uh, seven years, almost eight years of, uh, in the army. He couldn't return to the pulpit. He just couldn't do it. So he walks away from, from that. And um, I, I found this really cool um, kind of reference from him where he goes and, and he, of course, he gets land like all the other officers and, and all that. He goes out there to check out the land grants that, he, that he's received. And all, and he um, he talks about how just try to picture this. He's hanging out in a tavern as he's heading out in, into the frontier, and he hears his name being bandied about by people in this tavern. They're talking about Muhlenberg, Mueller, General Muhlenberg, right? And he's sitting there. And he says, uh, "I have at present the perfect resemblance of Robinson Crusoe, which probably means a beard and all that. Four belts around me, two brace of pistols, a sword, a rifle slung, besides my pouch tobacco pipe, which is not a small one." Add to this the blackness of my face, which occasions the inhabitants to take me for a traveling Spaniard. But he's wondering if they would be saying what they're saying if they knew he was Muhlenberg. But he's sitting there right there just listening to him um, and kind of spout off. Some, some, some are saying compliments and others are not so complimentary. So, you know, he went out there, he had this little episode of um, frontierism. I guess just to check out what he yeah. what he received, but that but you're right. He ends up in Congress and back to Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, I mean, and Matt, uh, Mike's talking about um, you know frontierism, and I think you know a lot. What happens to a lot of these Eighth Virginia guys following because uh, yeah. most of them are going to go west. Uh, no, that's exactly right. Let, let me say one more thing about Muhlenberg first, though. He was a very big deal in Pennsylvania, right? So he was, 
under the the uh, the revolutionary constitution of Pennsylvania, there was no governor. There was a plural executive. There was a council, and Ben Franklin was the the chairman or the president of the council, and Peter Muhlenberg was the vice president. And this is in this is in Franklin's last years, and he's not very well. So Muhlenberg was the de facto governor of Pennsylvania. I'm and sitting then, here amazed. Then he was, I, I should know this, uh, but I've mean, I got my interest just shrinks after the war. Oh yeah, but this so is post I'm guilty of that. But that's, that's later. But if yeah, you, if you look at, at sort of official Pennsylvania documents that are signed in the, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what time period, but it might even be, you know, like 1785, 86-ish. Uh, they're signed by Peter Muhlenberg as if he's like the governor, right? So he, he was a very big deal. And then he was elected to the House. And then uh, I think he served three non-consecutive terms. So it, and, and briefly to the, the Senate. First, third, and fifth Congresses, something like that. Right. And then and he was elected to the, to the Senate. Senate. Yeah. yeah. So he, he was a very big deal. But he resigned. He resigned from the Senate to take a government job, like an inspector. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what he was doing at the end. He was that you know, 61, he passed away. 18, yeah. you know. Right. So Jefferson gets elected president. And so all the anti-federalists start to get patronage jobs. And uh, that's, that's I think that, there you go. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> But uh, so, Mark, to answer your question about, uh, you know, these guys. So, you know, if you were from, you know, Tidewater, Virginia, and you fought in the revolution, you know, you, you probably stayed home after the war. You know, I don't know so much about those guys. But if you were from the Shenandoah Valley, or you were from Fort Pitt, or you were from Fincastle County, which is now, you know, you know, the extreme southwestern Virginia in Kentucky, you, your purpose for fighting the war was to gain the right to go west, right? In, in uh, 1763, at the end of the French and Indian War, uh, the king draws a line down the Allegheny Mountains saying nobody's allowed to go further than that because it was too expensive to fight Indians. Well, we just fought a war so we could do that, right? right? I mean, they were furious. Sure. Uh, and so for these guys uh, who were terrified of Indians, there's been an, a, a slow burn Indian war going on since 1754, right? These guys are, they are in the war for the right to fight Indians and go West. So when the war is over, in fact, before the war is over, these guys start to go West and there, there are two ways to go, right? Uh, you can't really cart a wagon over the Allegheny, over the Allegheny Mountains. You, you can either go up to Pittsburgh and float down the river or you can go down to the Cumberland Gap and through and then take the Wilderness Road into Kentucky. So I mean, these guys just start streaming west. And uh, uh, Peter Muhlenberg's Robinson Crusoe trip uh, is part of that, right? He's, he's yeah. got land in, yep. in, in Kentucky that he got his, you know, for his service. Thousands of acres. He's got to be you know, incognito to go because he's a celebrity. Mm -hmm. uh, but he goes, he goes down, he goes to Pittsburgh and then floats down the river. Yep. Um, he, he gets to, you know, I, I don't know where he stops, but he actually makes a point of going to outside Lexington to find uh, uh, Abraham Bowman, who was his lieutenant colonel uh, in the 8th, and they visit for a few days, right, and this big reunion between these two guys. Muhlenberg gets sick. Again, it's probably a relapse of, of his malaria, which lives in your liver forever until it kills you, uh, and uh, uh, finally, he heads off towards the Cumberland Gap and goes home that way. And uh, uh, Bowman gives him, you know, some, some bacon and a salted ham to keep him fed on his way. Oh, it's a buffalo tongue, I think, uh, to, to eat on his way home. Uh, but there are tons of these guys, right? I, I've got a piece yeah. up on my blog about Joseph Carmen, who took his family to, to, uh, to Kentucky and uh, uh, one day out on a, on a buffalo hunt he and his two companions get ambushed by indians and uh one of the other guys gets his finger blown off and they run away and he's left and he's captured and he's tortured and scalped and murdered and they spend a few days trying to find his body and they find body parts strung up in the bushes yeah it's pretty it, it was a brutal existence out there and uh, uh james knox the guy that uh, went into morgan's rifles he went to kentucky he uh uh, ended up, uh, I, I think, part of the Kentucky Constitutional Convention, and was a. Before that, he was a delegate to the Virginia Legislature when Kentucky was a part of Virginia. 
Um, there, there are countless stories like that. Uh, yeah. Jonathan Clark, who we talked about very early in, in the hour, he was uh, George Rogers Clark's older brother, William Clark's older brother. He went to Louisville. The whole family went uh, to Louisville. Uh, it was a land of opportunity, and they had fought the war to, uh, largely to do that. I don't think they cared about tea and taxes. Right. We're talking about in Boston. They wanted yeah, to land, was, was and the they one, did. Land was the one asset the Continental Congress had, or Virginia for that matter, had to entice these guys to sign on, yeah. to stay That's on. Exactly right. And a lot, a lot of them died when they got there, but they went. And uh, I think remembering the the Eighth Virginia M. Uhlenberg, a big part was you know the idea of this the, these Germans, uh, and uh, you know I think later generations as more Germans uh, immigrating to the United States, they were looking for German American heroes. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think that's you know why. Mark Wound on to uh, you said something about a new memorial is, uh, in an email. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, so actually, that's how uh, me and uh, Gabe uh, first met. Actually, um, we uh, so a couple years ago, uh, a friend of mine uh, from college is the uh, town planner for the town of Woodstock. Um, huh. uh, Woodstock is, was is working right now and uh, to develop a section in the, the square there um, to be a park, uh, but they want to turn it into kind of a living memorial. Um, good, good. I've seen the statue that's there. And I mean, the site of his church, which is an actual uh, what, uh, Episcopalian church now, I think, I think. And then uh, the, the courthouse, the not the original courthouse, but right. where the yeah. museum is. That's cool. Like I mentioned at the beginning, there's two, there's a bust and there's a statue to Peter Muhlenberg. Yeah. Um, but the idea was uh, to incorporate some sort of living memorial to the uh, members of the 8th Virginia. Um, and so uh, they're still in the process of developing it, but from the early conceptual plans, it looks uh, pretty cool. It's gonna, uh, you know, it's gonna be like uh, eight trees uh, to, to for the 8th Virginia. They're gonna use plants and stuff like that from place different battlefields that the 8th Virginia fought. They might, they might want to add of the continental line after that to avoid any mis, misidentification. Yeah, nothing to tear down. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But yeah, then there, and you know, as Gabe was talking about how a lot of them went west, there'll be like uh, in-ground lights that kind of go towards the west uh, with like a water feature and stuff like that. Um, so, so yeah, so there's some planning going into yeah, create some sort of community space uh, that the town can also use as a memorial. Yeah, to the which you know, looking at you know, memorialization of you know, the, the whole, you know, what everybody's talking about now, you know, every little town having a memorial to the Confederate soldiers, there was no real memorialization process like that for all these little towns who had guys who went off to go fight during the revolution. Um, and that the memorialization really after the revolution was, you know, Muhlenberg uh, and holding up heroes who were generals or, you know, allegoric figures, uh, Liberty, Columbia. Um, right, right over but now you know looking back on it you look at you know all these guys who traveled all over sacrificed died and you know ultimately won our independence you know there should be some sort of recognition form so there's not really a precedent for this kind of thing but it would be nice to have it uh you know remembered in some way uh you know there in woodstock which as gabe says it's not the be-all and end-all of a virginia but certainly it was a uh, uh well known for its associations with the sure. yeah. nice little town so yeah, you know, Woodstock needs Mike is a is a Richard Campbell statue. Yeah, get started on that. Yeah, Peter Muhlenberg statues. How about one Richard Campbell statue? Absolutely. I mean, I've got this thing. If if you give your life for your for your country and a cause, uh, you know, yeah, you should deserve that recognition. I yeah. agree. That that's probably I kept coming across Campbell's you know Campbell's name uh, in in all the stuff in the South and Green campaign and all that. I'm like. Okay, I, I need to know more about this guy. What's going on? Who is this guy? Because you get him mixed up too. There's so many camels. You know? Yeah. Uh, but he, he's dead in an unmarked grave in, in South Carolina and right. you know, forgotten. But he, Charles Porterfield, the subject of my second book, you know, Lieutenant Colonel. Um, his, the anniversary of Camden's coming right up. Yeah. You know? He didn't die, but he died a few months later from the wound inflicted at Camden. So I agree. I agree. Just 
Now, the, the, another reason why a lot of these guys don't get remembered is they all left their homes, right? I mean, they, probably right. of these guys moved west after the war. So, you know, they, they're not buried there. You know, they were gone for the last 40 years of their lives. So there's not families there afterwards. Yeah, to mark this. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, you know, so yeah, but in, in lieu of monuments and memorials at the moment, though, we do have, uh, you know, we can write about these guys so they're not forgotten. Uh, but we are a little after eight, but I want to thank uh, both uh, Gabe and Mike for uh, coming on and talking to us tonight. This is great. Uh, My pleasure. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, but yeah, uh, we'll uh, everybody uh, check out Emerging uh, Revolutionary War. We have uh, 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 our symposium, which was supposed to happen in September, uh, uh, you know, because of COVID has been postponed. So now it's going to be happening in May. Uh, it's happening in Alexandria. Uh, we got a bunch of great speakers, myself included. I'll be talking about other Germans, uh, the Hessians, uh, and some of the myths surrounding the Hessians during the 10 Crucial Days campaign. Uh, we also got a, a, a bunch of other speakers. You can check it out on our website and you can register starting now at 60 bucks uh, for the uh, symposium. And tune in next week. Uh, we'll have another edition of Rev War Revelry. Uh, but thank you, everybody, for checking in, and we'll see you next week. All right.